I do want to say thank you to all of those who have been volunteering, and we have so many. We're largely, I mentioned some staff, pastor changes, but we're a volunteer-driven congregation. It all rests on what we do, all of us together. Thank you to our amazing volunteers. As we continue our series out of the second letter that we have that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, uh, it, it, it doesn't get grittier than today's subject doesn't get grittier than guilt. I really want to put my pastor's hat on as we look, as we walk through chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians and just talk very honestly with you about the issue of guilt. Now, religion's gotten a bad rap over guilt. It's been sort of, a, it's, it's a little, sh- a bit shallow thinking, but, but generally people sometimes say, if it wasn't for religion, you know, it's just, that, that's why religion's bad. It just makes people feel guilty. You know, get rid of religion, we could get rid of guilt. Uh, first of all, psychological studies are not showing that that's the case. And, and David Brooks from the New York Times writes, religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. And if religion's in retreat, and there's more guilt than ever, it leaves us with this dilemma. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. That's where a lot of people are stuck. So let's not just say, well, if it wasn't for churches like this, we wouldn't feel guilty. No, that, listen, guilt is as powerfully present among people in our culture, secular as they may claim to be as, as ever. And guilt is obviously at the heart of our status before God, as we're going to see. And so, this is where Paul is going to land. He's just going to dive into this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And he he sets the stage for us in verse 5. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. Now, Macedonia today would be northern Greece. Corinth was in southern Greece. We came to Macedonia. We had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside and fears within. I mean, we we do appreciate um, the Apostle Paul's transparency and his honesty about this. This is sometimes the way it is. There's conflicts on the outside and fears within as we try to follow Jesus. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, Titus was a part of Paul's ministry team, often traveled with Titus. At this point, Titus had been down in southern Greece in Corinth, and he's making his way back up north, and, and, and he, he gets back to Paul. And, and Paul's saying, the God of comfort, man, he just used Titus to reassure us. We're having this really hard time in northern Greece. But, but look, verse 7, he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, which is a little perplexing, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So Titus came, and, and he said, because Paul's, Paul's got this a little bit conflicted relationship with the church in Corinth. And, and he said, Titus said, y- you guys miss me. And it just filled my heart just to know you miss me and that you were concerned for me. But he also, he also told me about your deep sorrow. Why, why would that make Paul happy? Well, that's what he, that idea of their sorrow is what he picks up on in the next verse. For even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I, I see that my, my, my letter hurt you, 
but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. Now, phew, Paul's really uh, just settling into this here. He said, I wrote you a letter that made you sorrowful, and it made me feel bad that I made you feel bad, and yet I don't feel bad anymore that you felt bad because your feeling bad made you fix things. Now, we don't know what this letter was. Some people think it was 1 Corinthians in our Bible, especially chapter 5. But, but most scholars believe this was probably a letter that's been lost to history. We don't know. We've never seen this letter. We don't have it anymore. All we know is that Paul probably wrote them a short rebuking letter right to the point, really gave it to them, stamped it, put it in the mail, and then said, oh, I'm not sure I should have sent that letter. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever hit send on your email and go, hmm, I'm not sure I should have sent that. This is Paul. But in verse 10, he, 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 this is the anchor verse that he's getting to. In verse 10, he talks about godly sorrow and he talks about worldly sorrow. And he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. You can feel bad in a way that will have a good outcome. Godly sorrow. But, he says, there, there's a worldly sorrow that brings death that will just beat you down and leave you worse off than you started. And so that's why you sometimes hear me say guilt is sort of like cholesterol. There's the good kind and there's the bad kind. And you have to understand them. Before, especially with the bad guilt, before I understood this, I was just always guilty, right? But, but you know, you're not holy just because you feel guilty all the time. You know, we belong to a fellowship of churches called the Assemblies of God, and I love this fellowship, and it's powerful, and we're reaching the whole world as we pool our resources together. Sometimes we just call us the AG. But there's another AG that I don't want you to be a part of, the always guilty fellowship. But sometimes we're just always guilty. And Paul's going to sort things out for us here now. And he's going to say, no, there's a good guilt. And this good guilt he calls godly sorrow. Jesus put a name to that and he called it conviction. He said the Holy Spirit will come and he's going to convict you. Of, and convict the world of sin, righteousness, judgment. So there's this convicting, there's this godly sorrow that just, that just it makes us uncomfortable, really uncomfortable, but, but it's to say something's not right in your life. And uh, sometimes we call this a conscience, but God's spirit is very active in this, and it convicts us of sin. And he says there's this godly sorrow that brings repentance that leads to salvation, but then he talks about the bad guilt, and that's what he calls worldly sorrow. And he says to the Corinthians, because you guys really dealt with things, obviously, obviously you experienced godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. Why? Because worldly sorrow is like condemnation. It just condemns you and leaves you hopeless. So you have good guilt, which is godly sorrow, which we would call the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But it's very possible that we can live in a dimension of personal condemnation that God doesn't intend for us 
in our new situation in Christ. So here's how, so let's just take a little closer look at that. He says, first of all, good guilt saving power. He says in verse, he said there in verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. That's a good outcome. That's what godly sorrow does. That's what the good guilt does. That's what the conviction of the Holy Spirit does. If we were to diagram that out, it would look like this. Conviction, which leads to repentance. Now, repentance is a U-turn word. It means I turn around and go the opposite the direction that I've been coming. I'm, I'm just going to go the opposite way. I'm going to deal with things. And, and there's going to be this, this conviction of the Holy Spirit will bring true change in my life as I turn around in areas that God knows I need to turn around. I turn around from the self-destructive stuff. I turn around from the stuff that grieves God's heart. I turn around from the things that are sabotaging all the relationships in my life. If I was to summarize all that in one word, it would be the word sin. I just turn around from sin, and I go the other direction. And so I've got this godly conviction, this godly sorrow over my sin. Repentance comes, and as a result, something repairing, something saving, something recovering begins to happen in my life. I find myself back in a right relationship with the Lord, and I find the Holy Spirit not just convicting me now, but the Holy Spirit reshaping me in his power. This is unbelievable. And, and, and Paul really unpacks this in the next verse as he talked about how conviction led to repentance to salvation in them. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What an earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation. What, that's indignation against what was wrong, whereas before you were tolerant of it. Now, if it's wrong and destructive, now you feel indignant towards it. This is what the conviction of the Holy Spirit, this is what good guilt does for us. There was an eagerness to clear yourself. There was indignation against that that was wrong, an alarm about it. And instead now, this godly sorrow brought a longing, a concern, a readiness to see justice done. You really, this godly sorrow really made you want to correct the wrong and repent of the sin. And at every point, you have now proven yourselves to be still guilty. No. <laughs> he said, you've proven yourself. You've come to a place of innocence in the sight of God. We, this is God's plan for us in Christ, that we walk in a place of innocence in his sight. Why? Because our track record is perfect? No, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit causes, leads us to the place of, of being concerned about our sin and, and an innocence that, that brings us uh, and a passion to be right and to come to Jesus under his forgiveness and come back to a place of innocence. When I was a young teenager living in Toronto, I, I had a friend, he, he attended the same church I did. He was a couple years older than me, high school. He was an incredible hockey player. Now, in Canada, hockey is the other religion. And, uh, and he, he, was, he was on his way seriously to the NHL, to, to playing in the National Hockey League. He was exceptionally good. But in the middle of it all, he walked away from the Lord. He just, too many friends who were just doing what they wanted, no accountability to God. He started living a very worldly lifestyle, uh, filling his life with sin, just, I don't care. I just want to do what I want to do. I just want to do what I feel like doing. And he just started walking away. Well, his parents were very close friends to my parents. And, and I knew that they were, thank God for praying parents. And, 
And I remember, I remember my friend um, got away with this for two or three years, and then he very powerfully came back to Jesus just before he graduated high school. And I'll never forget him telling me about what happened to him. He said, I became, I started becoming so uncomfortable about the state of my heart before God. I started feeling so uncomfortable with, with the fact that I wasn't right with God and my sin was going to send me to hell, and I just couldn't. And he said, he said, I started going nights on end where I couldn't sleep. My soul was so, my heart was so troubled about my rebellion against God that I couldn't even sleep at night until finally I got on my knees, I repented, and I got my heart right with Jesus again. What he experienced was godly sorrow, good guilt. That was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He'll make you feel troubled about the things that are destroying you. I hope the Holy Spirit will do that. And this is that, that good, good guilt. That's why Paul could start 1 Corinthians 7 with this verse. Therefore, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. And let's perfect holiness out of reverence for God. Is that what your life looks like? Just, just that passion to perfect holiness. And, and, and there's something of the work of the Holy Spirit that gives us a passion for purity, a hunger for holiness, that convicts us and alarms us about everything that's not of God in our lives. Listen, you can actually live that way. When you follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that good guilt, it, it doesn't leave you guilty. It leaves you innocent because you've come to Christ and you are beginning to follow him in the way that you live your life. Let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates our bodies and contaminates our spirits. Our world is just full of contamination, but thank God for good guilt that leads us another direction, that leads us back to Jesus. On the other side of that coin, however, is bad guilt's destructive power. Remember he said, godly sorrow brings repentance to salvation there in verse 10, but then he says, worldly sorrow brings death. So if we diagram that one, there's no repentance in the middle. It's just, there's a kind of worldly sorrow that just leaves you dead. Well, what on earth is he talking about? And this is that bad guilt. That this is condemnation that leads to death. Where you're not convicted of your sin, but, but you just feel condemned. And I know some, even Christians, I mean, they've given their life to Jesus. They've trusted Jesus who died on the cross for their sin to forgive their sin. But they, they, they just walk with this sense of condemnation. And that condemnation makes you feel hopeless. It makes you want to give up. It, it, it makes you, you're just always feeling like you're never measuring up. You, you can never just take a walk and enjoy the presence of God without just being haunted with, 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 you're not doing that enough, and you're not doing that enough. You see, you never measure up. It's just this condemnation. It doesn't really lead us to repentance. It just beats us down all the time. It, it, and, and you know what? When you have this kind of condemning death thing going on in your life, it, you're probably emotionally exhausted. You're probably behaviorally paralyzed because you just feel like there's nothing you can do to fix anything, even it's like you're living as if what Jesus on the, did on the cross still isn't enough. You still feel condemned. You just, and there's just nothing more. You're behaviorally paralyzed, and it's very hard to be spiritually confident. You're just spiritually insecure. 
all the time. I remember I have another friend, this time when I was in college, who was attending a little church I was, I was going to right beside the University of Minnesota. And I heard him pray in church because his father was the past. His father-in-law was the pastor and he'd ask him to pray once in a while during the services. And, and I, after I saw him in the lobby, I said, I said that was wonderful. I, it touched my heart when I heard you pray today. I was trying to encourage him. It did touch my heart. And, and right in front of me, he just had this meltdown like this spiritual, this condemnation all over him. He started muttering about something he had done in the military years earlier. It wasn't very specific, but he, he said, I just feel like such a creep every time I pray. I feel so unworthy. I feel, I, I feel like I should not be the one. Why? Because he's walking under a kind of condemnation that, that he wasn't even letting the blood of Jesus who cleanses us from our sin take away from us and, and just left him in this incredibly spiritually insecure position. And it, it might help us just to take a moment. I'm not going to s- stretch this out, but, but we need to look at this bad guilt. Like, why does that happen in our lives? Why, why do even we who follow Jesus live with this bad guilt so much? Now, I want to give you three reasons very quickly. Number one, incomplete repentance. Incomplete repentance. This is where you may feel bad, but it's not sorrow over sin. You may feel bad you're guilty. Uh, who, who likes feeling guilty, right? But sometimes, sometimes when we try to come to the Lord, our, our sorrow is centered in other things. It's not a sorrow that we have offended a holy God and that we've sinned against him. And so as a result, remember, repentance is a turnaround word. So as a result, there's no active follow-through. Instead, Instead, we just want to feel better without necessarily feeling sorrowful over our sin. We, we want Jesus to medicate our bad feelings without having to truly grieve over the way we have sinned against him. Are you following me? Now, I'm going to tell you a very silly story. A guy walks into a restaurant, orders a Coke, and the waiter gives him the Coke. The guy looks at the Coke and immediately throws it in the waiter's face. Waiters, wow, what on earth? Who do you think you are? And the guy says, oh, I'm so sorry. I've got this compulsion that when someone hands me a drink, there's this compulsion to throw it back at them. And I'm so sorry, but I'm really working at this. I'm really working to try to help fix this. And so if you you just bring me another Coke, I'll do my best not to to do that to you again. So, So the waiter finally says, okay, he brings him another Coke. Guy looks at it, throws it back in his face. At, At this point, it's like, lights out, right? He's kicked out of the restaurant. And, but the guy feels so guilty about this. Why do I always throw drinks back in people's faces? So, so he checks himself into a rehab center for a month. He goes through intense therapy. And when he gets out, he goes back to that same restaurant. And he goes in and orders a Coke. And the waiter says, I remember you. Last time you were in, I actually had to get another shirt, man. And he said, oh, don't worry. Don't worry, the guy said, I've been through rehab and I'm cured. I'm cured. So, so, but I'd really like a Coke. So he talks this waiter into giving him a Coke again. He takes the Coke, looks at it, throws it back in the waiter's face. And the waiter goes, what? I thought you said you were cured. And he said, I am cured. I mean, I still have the compulsion, but I don't feel guilty about it anymore. 
That's incomplete repentance. That's saying, I want Jesus to medicate me so I feel better, but I don't really want to deal with the sin. I've somehow come to Jesus, but I've never grieved over my sin. And uh, you're going to find you're still going to feel pretty conflicted internally at a spiritual level. Or sometimes it's personal shame that causes bad guilt to perpetuate. Just that personal shame. You see, being unworthy does not equal being worthless. Unworthiness does not equal worthlessness. Listen, you got to separate that in your mind. You are not a worthless human being. God created you. He stamped his image on you. And if you were worthless, he wouldn't have sent his son to torturously die in your place so that you could be completely forgiven in spite of yourself. I mean, you are of immense value to him. But there is a shame that grips us. Or, or sometimes we think contrition, which is sorrow over sin, is self-hatred. Sometimes we just talked about being true, true repentance, being sorrowful over our sin, but sometimes we cross a line where our sorrow over sin becomes a, a perverted self-hatred. And that is not part of the gospel of Jesus Christ either. Listen, unworthiness does not equal worthlessness, and contrition does not equal self-hatred. In fact, Jesus bore on the cross our sin and our shame. I mean, he took away our shame. The Bible's very clear about that. I mean, he hung there for hours, being tortured to death, almost naked, with people mocking him the whole time. I mean, what he was doing, he was taking your shame, and he was taking your sin. And so we could be free of shame and free of the guilt of sin when we, when we honestly repent and sorrow over our sin and ask him to forgive our hearts. Now, this one, you're going to have to stick with me for a moment. I think we often have false guilt continuing with us, lingering too long. False guilt that shouldn't be there just because of self-righteousness. Just, you know, and and there's just something that makes us always want to default towards self-righteousness. You ask the average person, how do you become a Christian? What are they going to say? Put your trust in Jesus who died in your place? No, they're going to say, well, do more good works and attend church. That's self-righteousness. That's trying to find righteousness in the face of God, in yourself and of yourself. And so you blow it and you sin. And sometimes these guilt feelings, this bad guilt persists, not that you feel bad over the sin, but you're going, oh, I can't believe I did something so stupid. I can't believe I did something like that. How could I have done that? And and we just start beating ourselves up. We just kicking ourselves all the time. Sometimes like my friend in church, years later, still kicking ourselves. And um, what happens is that we, we are trying to find a righteousness. We're, we're more disappointed in ourselves in our inability to be righteous. But I just, let me just say this as clearly as I can. God's not as surprised at your ability to mess up as you are. <laughs> I mean, God fully understands our ability to mess up. And the point is that disappointment with self ought not to replace a delight in God's grace. Now, repentance will head us a new way. We're repurified. We're we're just living the right way we ought to. But sometimes we live guilty with this false guilt just because we're still so disappointed in ourselves. And God comes back and says, well, who do you think you are anyway? Righteousness is not in you. Righteousness starts in me. 
He took your unrighteousness and in exchange gave you his righteousness. And so when he looks at you, he sees only, if you're in Christ, he sees only the righteousness of God. He doesn't see your track record. He sees Jesus' track record who never sinned. And therefore, he imputed to us his righteousness so that we're clothed. The Bible said we're literally in Christ, clothed with his righteousness so that we can walk, walk and God looks at us and he, and he acts towards us as if we had never sinned. And then he says, so, so what are you carrying all that bad guilt around for? You're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Don't, don't trip over yourself, just disappointed with yourself. That's not where this righteousness starts, but delight in the grace of God. Because this self-condemnation perpetuates in a bad way. This self-condemnation can perpetuate a very toxic self-fixation where we're just, where every little thing, we're just, oh, Oh, what's wrong about me now? What's wrong about me now? Oh, what do I do wrong now? And, and sometimes we start just feeling guilty over things that, that, that really aren't morally wrong. They're just that, you know, I forgot to pick up milk on my way home from work. And I know my spouse isn't very happy with me, but that's not exactly, you're a long way away from the Ten Commandments. That's a long way away from moral sin. That's just... That's just, you know, we're all frail. Some of us are extroverts, which means that sometimes we can be overpowering. Some of us are introverts, which means sometimes we, we, we cannot be getting out of ourselves like we need to to minister to others. I mean, these are imperfections, but they are not moral sin. Listen, sometimes we just get overly introspective. We become so self-fixated that we won't even allow ourselves to be okay once Jesus' blood has cleansed us from our sin. The speaker and counselor, Paula Reinhardt, she said, as she was just driven to the point of exhaustion by her own drivenness and self-fixation, she said, it finally dawned on me one day that my inner critic was not necessarily the voice of God. Yeah. There's good guilt. There's conviction of the Holy Spirit, yes. But there's also the bad stuff. But I want to leave you with a vision biblically of a clear conscience. Here's the promise of a clear conscience. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14. He's talking about these external things we do to try to get over our sin. And in the Old Testament, they'd offer sacrifices. And in the Old Testament, God said, because shedding of blood represented the giving up of life, life for life. He said, without the shedding of blood, there's no removing of sin. And so, Hebrews 13, uh, 9, 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. And that's before Jesus. But Jesus brings us something more. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our conscience. Would you say those three words with me? Cleanse our conscience. This is more than just looking good on the outside. This is, this is more than doing all these external religious things to get over my guilt feelings. You can have a clean conscience because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, that's Christ on the cross, 
He will cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Or 1 Peter 1.8, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, sinless, you get his sinless nature because you've been redeemed not by some some money some people came up with. You were redeemed with the one price that Satan's ownership of you could not top. That was Jesus' own life, his blood shed. And by that, listen, you can walk free from guilt. You, You can respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and find repentance and cleansing. And then when you've come to the cross, then you can walk without guilt. And you keep the account short. When we do fail, we repent. We turn to him. We're constantly seeking to, 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 to remove by the power of the spirit the contamination of body and spirit that can so infect us. We're going God's way. But I want to tell you, we live with a clear conscience because we've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah.